Stories told of a couple who were childhood sweethearts, met in elementary school, ended up dating and uh, eventually marrying, went on to be married 50 years, never moving from the community in which they, were, w- which they had uh, grown up and where they had met one another. And at the end of their 50th anniversary celebration, they decided just the two of them to kind of take a little you know, history tour and walk in some of the places that they had gone when they were children. And they went to the old schoolhouse that they had gone to school together when they first met. They walked into the, one of the classrooms and the old wooden desk were still there having been preserved as a local uh, museum. And they went and they looked underneath it and they saw where he had carved his name, I love you, Sally. And they walked down the street and as they were heading toward their home, an armored truck drove by and as it went by, it hit a, hit a bump and the back door opened and money flew out, a bag of money. And they kept going. And his wife went, wow, look at this. And she picked it up and said, this is great. And he goes, no, we're going to have to give it back. And she said, no, this is a great anniversary present. And so they took it home and she counted all of it. There's $50,000. And she put it in a bag and she hid it up in the attic. And he said, you know, we really need to give it back. And she said, no, we'll just wait to see if anybody claims it. Well, sure enough, within a couple of days, the FBI was canvassing the neighborhood, going door to door, and they came to this particular door, and they knocked on it, and the older man answered the door and said, do you know anything about you know, any money that maybe someone in the neighborhood had found? And he said, you know what, yeah, we found it, and uh, my wife took it, and she hid it in the attic. And uh, they went and asked her, and she said, no, my husband, you know, he's getting a little old and whispered to him, you know, he's kind of got a touch of senility, and he's kind of on the border of Alzheimer's, and you know, you can't believe a thing that he says. And so the FBI wondered what to do, and they decide they're going to go ahead and, and take a statement anyway. So they take him over, and they begin to ask him. and said, so uh, go ahead, starting from the beginning, can you tell us you know, your, your account of what happened? And he goes, well, when Sally and I were walking home from school yesterday, we found a bag, and, and the other guy looked at the other one and went, uh, we'll get back to you if we need anything further. And he just walked out of the room. You know, and, I, and as I heard that story, I thought, you know, sometimes the truth can sound crazy to others not familiar with it. And then I thought, man, that sure is true of the Bible, isn't it? You know, the truth of God's word, the Bible, sounds crazy to people who are not familiar with it. And yet, it is truth. In our ongoing study of the uh, Apostle Paul's final letter to Timothy, we learned the last time we were together that the world would go from bad to worse, that the last days would become difficult and be identifiable by some objective measurements. And in fact, you know, if you turn with me to 2 Timothy, we saw that, you know, that in these end times, these last days, these difficult days, men will become lovers of self. And Paul warned that professing leaders, even in the church, would love themselves more than God and put their own agenda ahead of God's. And that such self-love would result in destructive behavior. It says not only would men love themselves, but they would become lovers of money. If you recall from the first letter that he wrote to Timothy that we studied a while ago, he warned in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says that it would be the love of money. He says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. And 2 Timothy 3 said that men would be lovers of self and lovers of money, and as a result, these attitudes would reflect themselves. They would be boastful and arrogant, revilers and disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. As such, selfish behavior is taught and modeled. And I, th- I like to call it, you know, taught and caught. 
you know, because such behavior is often caught more than it's even taught with words, but we can see it demonstrated in action. As such selfish behavior is taught and as it is modeled in front of us, ultimately what would happen is it would result in people looking for those who would teach such lies and validate their wrong behavior. That's why when we'll see next time as we look at this, he says that, you know, there will be a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't want to hear God's truth, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires or their own lusts, and they'll be enticed by that. We'll want to hear from people who will tell us that what we're doing is right, even though God clearly teaches that it is wrong. There's a day coming, and we live in such a day when evil is called good and good is called evil. The world is upside down from God's perspective, and that day has come, and we live in that day as we notice. The last days began with the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and were fulfilled in the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon man at Pentecost. We live in these last days. The question that I had as I was looking at this that arise are, how can we protect ourselves from becoming a casualty in the war or the battle of the truth versus the battle against lies. How can you you and I keep ourselves from getting caught up in the momentum of increasing ungodliness and the behavior that's encouraged by such? How can we protect ourselves from going with the flow, so to speak, of the culture in which we live? Even the church culture that now has accumulated for themselves people who will validate wrong behavior and not hold them accountable to the objective standard of the truth of the Word of God. How can you and I protect ourselves from getting caught up in all of that? How can we protect ourselves uh, from evil men who will deceive as they are being deceived themselves? And the answer is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 14 through 17. Paul gives the answer to such questions as he reminds Timothy and all of us of God's plan for reaching people. What is God's plan for reaching people? This plan has never changed, it will not change, and it continues until the end of time. God's plan for reaching people, he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 14, he tells us this. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. It says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. This is one of my personal all-time favorite sections of the Bible because there's no other passage in Scripture, in the New Testament specifically, that speaks so concisely on the nature and the work of God's Word in salvation and also in sanctification. In this text, Paul shares the following three truths uh, that relate to God's plan for reaching people. The first thing that he tells us in verse 14 is that the Word of God gives us instruction for steadfastness. Instruction for steadfastness. And what he says, as, as if you'll notice, there's a contrast immediately that we see. Some translations have the word however, you however, some say but or whatever. The bottom line is there's a contrast between what he has just, what he has just shared with us and now what he wants to introduce in this particular passage. He says, notice the contrast between evil and deceived men and what God's people are to do. He says, you however... And he gives a contrast. You know, God's people are not to be lovers of self, 
nor lovers of money. We went into great detail the last time we're together. You know, the Word of God clearly teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as we already love ourselves. We have a problem, and the problem of sin nature is that we're already in love with ourselves. Even those who are self-deprecating or, or belittle themselves, it's just an attempt, a prideful attempt, to get others to raise you up. The bottom line is we all love ourselves. The problem of man is that we don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And because we love ourselves, we become lovers of money. And when we become lovers of money, as we've already heard in 1 Timothy chapter 6, for those who want to get rich, we fall into all kinds of snares and traps. For those who want to get rich, they, you know, basically we wander away from the truth of the Word of God and we get caught up in a whole bunch of things that we never should be involved in because if we love God first, if He would have protected us from going down that road. And as we look at this and see this and identify it, really, as Jesus said, you can't love God and you can't love money. It's just not possible that you'll love one and you'll despise the other. And so the whole attitude of stewardship that's found all through Scripture, that God is the rightful owner of everything, and anything that any of us have is simply because of the grace of God who shares with us from the treasures of his his household any blessing that we have. And we're to be stewards of those resources to be used by us as God leads us to further his kingdom and his plan and his purpose. Many passages in Scripture talk about how we can use the mammon or the money of unrighteousness to lead people even to faith in Christ, how we're to store up in heaven and not store here on earth where rust and moth destroys and thieves break into steel, but to store up for yourself treasures in heaven where none of those things can take place. Peter asked once, he said, hey, listen, Lord, you know what? What do we get for following you? And he said, hey, you know what? There's nothing you're going to give up this side of eternity that won't be restored to you a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. That's what you get. You get a hundred times the investment that you put in. And any financial counselor that's here today recognizes that a hundred times a return is a pretty good deal at what little risk there is in being obedient to God. It's a no-brainer when it comes to penciling it out. So as he, as, he, as he shares these things with us, the only way to defeat Satan's lies is with God's truth. It's not hard to convince sin nature to love self before God. It's not hard to convince sin nature that God wants us to be happy, therefore go out and please yourself. It's not hard to convince sin nature of any of these things. It's not hard to convince sin nature of boasting of yourself because after all, if you don't promote yourself, who will? It's not hard to buy into these lies and the only protection that we have, as Timothy is is shared by the Apostle Paul, the only protection that you and I have is the truth of the Word of God. That's why he tells him to continue to continue in the things that you have learned and that which you have become convinced over a period of time and consider from whom you have learned them. Notice what he's saying here. Continue. Continue in the things that you have learned, having become convinced of that which you now understand to be truth and never forget who taught these things to you. And as we look at this, the whole idea of steadfastness is what stood out to me as I looked at this particular passage. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's answer to the problem of increasing ungodliness and the teaching of evil as good is to be steadfast in the word of God. Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 11, we read this. 
And God gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. He's saying, hey, God has given us his word. He's given us pastors and teachers. He's given us evangelists and apostles. He's given us men of God who are to build us up and teach us the truth of the word of God, never straying from it. That's the primary calling of any man of God is to expose God's people to the truth of the word of God, to teach them. And that's why it says preach, preach the word of God. We'll talk about it next week. In season and out of season. Man, don't get sidetracked. Your primary responsibility is to preach the word of God and to pray for God's people. That's your job. That's what you're to do. Don't ever get sidetracked from it. And the only protection that we have from those who will come and introduce lies to us and, and, and as they are deceived, deceiving others, we're not tossed to and from or carried by, by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth, the truth of the word of God in love, we're to grow up mature in our faith in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. 1 Corinthians 12 also reinforces this truth. Every one of us are a part of the body of Christ who have come to faith in Christ. And every one of us have a part in building one another up and encouraging one another in the faith. We're to gather together and assemble together and not forsake our own gathering together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more stimulate one another to love and good deeds as we get together so that we will build one another up in the faith. We'll keep one another accountable to the truth of God's word. When we're starting to buy into the lie there's people around us who say oh that's just garbage and here's why from the word of God and we help one another stay focused on the truth of the word of God back to second Timothy the, the the word here steadfastness has to do with the whole idea of holding on to the word of truth to hunker down to, to as a soldier in a foxhole man not to give up your position as a batter at the batter's box to dig in and not let a pitcher move you back away from the plate you know as as we look at these things to be steadfast Paul says to the Corinthians be steadfast and immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain as the writer of Hebrews said that we're to run the race with endurance we're to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despised the shame Consider him who, grew, who, who endured such hostility against men and how he dealt with it so that we don't grow weary and we don't grow faint. As Paul said, I've run the good race. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. I've finished the course. And there lying ahead of, for me is the crown of righteousness which lies ahead for all who look forward and long for his appearing. Man, to fight the fight. Don't give up. Don't get tired. Don't get weary on holding fast to the word of God, which is the truth, the standard of God that teaches us everything that we need to know about the character of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, what God wants us to do. He is saying to Timothy, he's saying to all of us, you, however, are not like all these other people who will be led astray by the garbage that comes up as things go from bad to worse, but you are to hang on to the word of God. It's the only anchor that keeps us from being tossed to and from by every trickery and deceitful wind of doctrine that comes along. Hold fast to the word of God. There is nothing that God has given us 
us that replaces the word of God as the anchor of truth for the Christian soul. We're to hold fast, to be steadfast, to be immovable. The point is this, that Timothy had learned, he says, continue in that which you have learned. He did not learn by accident. The word continue is an imperative. It's a command. Continue. It's not an option. Hold fast to the word of God and don't forget how you learned it. You wanted to know. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Ask and you shall have. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The reason you don't have is because you don't ask. The reason you don't know is because you haven't sought. He says anybody who whosoever seeks the Lord, whosoever seeks the truth will not be disappointed. The reason we have so many biblically illiterate Christians today is that we don't have the desire to seek to know God's truth. That's just plain and simple, maybe not politically correct, but I haven't been and I probably won't be. And the reality of it is this. The reason that some of us don't know much about our faith is because we haven't sought to know the truth. Seek it out. I'm meeting with a man who came to me and said, hey, that invitation of meeting with you, I want to grow in my faith. Is that invitation still open? Absolutely. And the reason that he has grown in his faith over the last two years is because he has sought it out. He has sought to grow. He was tired of being at this level in his faith, and he wanted to know more. He looked at those who knew more of Scripture and said, why don't I know that? I should know that. I can know that. I will know that. The whole purpose of Operation Timothy and the things that we promote here isn't so we can have more activities and more things to do. The reality of it is is so you can be rooted and grounded in the Word of God so you know what you believe. You can become convinced, as Paul was, as Timothy was, I'm convinced I know whom I believe, and I know that he is able to keep that which I have given unto him against the day of God's judgment. I'm convinced of that. Timothy became convinced of that. He learned the truth, and the only way he learned it is because he made an effort to learn. He said, don't forget what you've learned. Continue on in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of. Listen, when I first came to know Christ as my Savior in 1978, I didn't know anything about the Bible other than what the gospel clearly revealed to me, and I'll share that in a second. I didn't know a thing about the Bible, but I wanted to learn, and I sought God's truth. I have become convinced over the last 20-some years that everything that I've learned in the Word of God is truth. I have become convinced of it. I wasn't convinced of it. There are some things I'm still not convinced of, but as I continue to seek God's truth and walk in obedience with Him, I will become convinced of those things as well. The progression that we go through is that we become convinced because our relationship with God is like our relationships with other people in, in a certain degree, and it's to this extent. I become convinced that I can trust other people as they have demonstrated that they're trustworthy in our relationship over a period of time. It doesn't mean they can't make a mistake. It doesn't mean they can't blow it because God knows that happens on a regular basis. But with God, it can never happen because he is not like us. He was made in the appearance of a man and took on the likeness of man, but yet without sin. Jesus Christ knows our weaknesses, can sympathize with us, and yet he did not sin as a perfect, holy, righteous God that he is. The bottom line is this. We become convinced over a period of time of the truth of God's word as we see it demonstrated in the world around us. I have become convinced of the word of God that, you know, as you look around and you see, you see the tragedy that's out there, I have become convinced as I looked at men and women who have destroyed their lives and their health by the way that they've lived, that many warnings in the word of God are true. 
I have become convinced that those who abuse drugs, uh, who abuse recreational drugs, which is an oxymoron in and of itself, but who, who abuse drugs and who abuse alcohol and consumption, I have become convinced of those who abuse these things destroy their life. I did a funeral for a man who smoked for 30 years. And at the funeral, he had lung cancer. And what he wanted to get across to young people was, you know what? I want, to, I want you people to know that this is a self-inflicted, unnecessary wound. It is a lethal mistake that I made by choices that I made. And I need you to understand that, you know what? Every one of us, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. What a man sows, he reaps. I have become convinced of that. I have become convinced as I've seen marriages fall apart because of selfishness or, or sexual immorality or because of covetousness and materialism and greed and wanting to get rich and wanting to be wealthy and wanting to have material things. And I've seen marriages fall apart. I've become convinced that what God says about these things is true. I've become convinced as I've seen families fall apart the reasons why God hates divorce. I've become convinced of that as I've seen the consequences and the tragedy that has gone along with it. I've become convinced of why why parents should treat their children in a certain way and why their children should be obedient to their parents because this is right. This is a command of God, a promise of God that children who obey their parents in the Lord will live a long and healthy life. I have become convinced that rebellion is not a very good thing. I have become convinced because I've seen the consequences. I have visited people in prison who are there because they were not convinced of the truth of God's word, but they bought into the lie. I have seen men who have lost their businesses because they bought into the lie and were not convinced of God's truth. They bought into the lie. I remember specifically sitting down in a business that I was involved in with a man who had had his business for a number of years. He was probably 70 years old. He sat his son who was running the business and myself who was also there. He sat us down and said, men, there are three things that have ruined many men over the period of time that I've known. Number one is women. Number two is, is toys. And number three is booze. And what he was saying was, I've seen too many men lose their businesses, their families and everything because they got caught up and involved in other, with women other than their wives. I have seen them lose everything because they got caught up and the money that they were making and started buying toys and didn't take care of business. And I've seen many men whose lives were ruined because they got caught up in booze and what I would add, drugs. He said, I've seen it. I've lived long enough to see that these things are true. I have become convinced of these things. I have seen churches die because they have not been committed and steadfast to upholding the word of God as the preeminent truth from which they preached from their pulpit. I have seen churches die, and every church is vulnerable to die a, a, a slow and just agonizing death as they move away from the word of God as the preeminent position from the pulpit and begin to, to buy into all of the garbage that goes on in the culture. I have seen it, and I've become convinced of that, not just because I have seen it, but more importantly because God has told us that that is truth. But we become convinced of these things, don't we? As we grow older, as we mature, as we see what God is saying is true, and our responsibility is to convince those around us to believe it as well. See, we don't always have to see the end result to know that it's true because that's faith. Faith comes by, by, you know, when we look at faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1. It's being able to believe God and take him at his word even though we never lived to see the day that he said, maybe this side of eternity. But you know what? We've lived to see everything else he said is true. Certainly that which we haven't seen will come to fruition as well. So he had become convinced of these things. And in essence, he's saying, I've become convinced that, you know what? When God says, don't be deceived, God's not mocked. When a man sows, he reaps. You know, throughout the course, and you know I'm going to have to mention this at some time, so I might as well do it right now and get it out of the way. But throughout the course of the season with the angels, uh, and, and, I, and, and did I mention the world champion, Anaheim Angels? No, I didn't think so. But 
You know, and, and that phrase has never been uttered from a pulpit anywhere in, in the world. The world champion, Anaheim Angels, one of the things that we examined throughout the course of the season was a very simple truth, and that is that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. I have become convinced that the reason that God chose to bless these men is that they were genuinely a group of humble men who considered others more important than themselves. I don't think any interview, I don't think anything that you've ever seen would be contrary to what I just said. There wasn't a guy in there who did not defer or deflect attention from himself to somebody else. It was always somebody else's turn. And God made it so clear to all of us that, you know what, it wasn't about one person. It was about God choosing to bless them at that moment in time. Now, it certainly doesn't mean that if we humble ourselves, then God owes us a world championship by any stretch of the imagination. The full counsel of God would dictate otherwise. But it does mean this. I have become convinced that God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. I was walking in to set up for chapel on Sunday and the people from Fox were there and they were doing interviews ahead of time. They were cleaning out the room of all their camera equipment and the guy said, oh, I understand that you're chapel for the angels. Yeah, okay. We began to have a conversation and he said, you know what? News people are supposed to be objective but I'm telling you right now that there isn't anybody in the media who's not wanting your team, the Angels, to win. I said, really? Why is that? He goes, because we have, we have never met a group of guys who are so accommodating, who are so humble, who are so gracious. Anytime we've asked of anything, they were there. Anytime we've asked a question, even on days when you know, we would get hammered, you know, which was just to make the victory sweeter, by the way. It was that, you know, that, that there was, you know, they would stand there, they would answer the questions. And he said, we have never met a more arrogant group of people than are in that other locker room. And I thought, wow, you know, and, and I said, wow, isn't that interesting? And it was a great opportunity. I said, isn't it interesting that within the heart of man, the justice of God is there because God has created us in his image, that there's something in the heart of man that wants to see humble people exalted and proud people brought to their knees. Why is that? And then they said, well, you know what, we got to get going. <laughs> so... You know, and I clean it up real quick. You know, hey, get that over there. Nice to see you. You know, good luck. God bless. Hey, nice one. So, but, you know, but the reality of it is, in addition to that, we talked about the fact that, you know what, uh, that we have a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. What's your limitation for God? I'm just telling you, from the word of God, I've become convinced that our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. And even at the end of the game, when I saw Darren out there going, I got it, I got it, I'm still thinking, prove it. <laughs> Catch it, and then I want to see you running around, and I'm going to look around and make sure that, you know, there isn't, you know, wait a minute, or instant replay or something. Because there's a certain tendency, I almost felt like when the disciples were praying for the release of Peter from prison, and they heard a knock at the door, and they went and opened it, and it was Peter. They slammed the door shut because it couldn't have been Peter, because we're in here praying that God would release him from prison. So that's the first thing I thought of. I was like, man, I've been praying for this, and it's happened, but it can't be happening because, well, wait a minute. Why not? Because we have a God who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. And every scripture passage that we went through during the course of the season, where we saw the life of Joseph and Daniel and David and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, we saw God choose at times to deliver his people and other times he chose not to deliver his people. But no matter what, every one of them had the attitude that regardless of how God answers our prayer, we will trust in him. 
no matter what. Win or lose, victory or defeat, getting eaten by the lions or the fiery furnace or whatever it is, or being protected and delivered from it, it really doesn't matter. Our God is able to do it, but even if he chooses not to, I will still praise his name, for he is God and I am not. See, Timothy, as all of us, need to become convinced of these truths as we remain steadfast to the Bible as the answer to all life's questions. The Bible says should be our final answer to every question. The Bible says. The Bible says. Paul reminded Timothy of those who taught him the word of God and the models they were of God's truth and how they lived out in the flesh these truths that they taught him. He tells Timothy, don't forget from whom you have learned this truth of God's word, which now introduces us to the fact that the Bible not only gives us instruction for steadfastness, but also instruction for salvation. Notice in verse 15 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, and that from childhood, notice what he's saying, that it's from childhood. Scripture is the source of saving truth. Read Mark chapter 4, the sower and the seed. The sower is that the person who shares the word of God. The seed is the word of God. The ground are the different hearts upon which the word of God ends up you know, being, being applied to. But the reality of all of it is this, is that God's plan for reaching people has never changed, and that is the word of God presented by human witness is God's plan for reaching people with the gospel. God's plan for reaching people is to take human beings like you and I who have tasted the goodness and kindness of God and share the gospel message with those God brings into our life. That is God's plan. He uses human witness in order to do so. God's plan for reaching people with the gospel is by using you and I who have tasted the goodness of God. Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. That is his plan. To use you and I, that we may proclaim, 1 Peter chapter 2, that we may proclaim to the world around us the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness to light. May he get all the glory and praise. And he's saying that we're to tell others about sin and judgment, uh, about God's love in spite of our sinfulness, of Jesus Christ's substitutionary death upon the cross, the power of his resurrection, our need for forgiveness, to repent, to turn to God, to throw ourselves upon his mercy, to experience his grace, to experience his forgiveness. There's no better place to start that teaching than at home with our children. He's saying, don't ever forget who taught you these truths. Not only him, but more importantly, his mother and his grandmother. His mother and his grandmother, Lois, and his his mother, Eunice, that he was led to saving faith. And that's what he talked about in in the the first chapter of of 2 Timothy 2. He says, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. He's saying, man, don't forget your mom and your grandma and how they lived godly lives before you. How they demonstrated everything that they taught you with their words, they lived with their mouth. I'm going to tell you, ladies, there should be no more encouraging passage of Scripture than this one when it comes to the fact that Timothy's father is conspicuously absent from the Scripture records because either he was dead, gone, he wasn't a believer, he had no impact in their life spiritually, but mom and grandma did. I know and I speak to women all the time who are frustrated because either your husband has not come to faith in Christ or because they're not living a life that's pleasing to God. All I'm going to tell you is this. Be steadfast. Regardless of what he chooses to do, you do what's right before God. 
And this is a testimony of how God can use you as a mom or you as a grandma, even when the mom isn't faithful or when the dad's not faithful, but grandma and grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandma, uncle, aunt, brothers, cousins, sisters, relatives, anybody that God is faithful to use your testimony to those who don't know Christ, to draw them to himself, to live a godly life. Don't get frustrated when other people aren't obedient. You be obedient to God. And this is a beautiful passage that dictates that. You know, it's God's plan that he uses any and everyone who has tasted the kindness of God in order to do so. See, the faith of Timothy's grandmother and mother was based on the sacred writings. It's based on scripture. That's what he's saying. Back to 2 Timothy 3. You ever become convinced of these things, you know who you learned them from, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. The sacred writings specifically refers in this context to the Old Testament. What he's saying is that you knew because you grew up literally from childhood or from infancy being exposed to the truth of God's word. The moral laws of God, the purpose of God's laws were given to set a standard by which none of us could ever pass. The laws of God set a standard by which none of us can ever pass. None of us have kept the entire law. Even the, the, the young lawyer that came to him and said, but I've done all these things from childhood. Jesus said, great, then go sell all your possessions and come and follow me. And the Bible said it revealed his sinfulness and that what? He loved God more than he loved, he loved money more than he loved God. He thought that he was okay before God. The whole purpose of God's laws is to be a mirror to reflect to us what God sees about us. Have you ever eaten with somebody and they're going like this? Do I got something in my teeth? Do I got something in my teeth? You become their mirror. You ever do that? I got, do I got something in my face? And it's like, well, no, and they do, but it's just fun to watch them walk around with it. But, uh, but the reality of it is, is that, you know, we become that mirror for others who can't see themselves. I, I watched the movie Castaway the other day. I know, some of you are going, Castaway? Is that, is it, it was like two, two years ago it came out. I've been busy. But I, I saw that movie, and, and I thought, you know, he thought he looked good, man. But, he, you know, progressively over a period of time, he didn't look that good. But, uh, you know, until he saw a mirror, then he realized how bad he really was. Well, the Word of God, according to James, is a mirror that shows us what God already knows about us, but what we're blind to ourselves. It shows us that we are all sinners, none are righteous, no, not one, and that we all fall short of the glory of God. The whole purpose of the laws of God was to show us of our sinfulness. Timothy was exposed to the word of God from the time he was a child, and all of the Old Testament exposed to him what God wanted him to know, and that's, Timothy, you fall short of my standard of holiness and perfection. He was exposed to that, but he was also exposed to the fact that, you know what, that God would offer a remedy for that sin. And he looked forward to the day when God would send his Savior into the world to die for sin. No one was made right by the sacrifices of the Old Testament. No one was ever saved by following the sacrificial system. Nobody. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. The only thing that made him right before God was faith. And what God told them to do, that what they were doing was what God wanted them to do. It led them to understand when Jesus came that he would die upon the cross. See, the sacred writings or the Bible leads us. It's a tutor that leads us to where God wants to take us. Where does God want to take us? He of God be able to expose to every one of us that none of us are righteous, no, not one, we're all sinners on our best day, we still deserve to go to hell, period. And so he takes the word of God to emphasize it. Have you ever broken any of God's commandments? Yes, you have, and so have I. None of us are able to uphold them because they're impossible. They were used by God to show us what he knows about ourselves. To lead us to what? To lead us to this, salvation through faith in Christ. 
Salvation through faith in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 15. From childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to give to you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Point simply is this. Even before it occurred, the death of Jesus Christ provided the satisfaction of divine justice by which God could forgive those who repented of their sins. Even before the death of Jesus, salvation was available by grace through faith alone based on the perfect sacrifice that was yet to be made on the cross. See, the point is the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament is a road map, a tutor, a teacher that gives us the wisdom that leads us to salvation which is found only through faith in Christ. Bible knowledge will never save you from the judgment of God. The devil knows scripture. He quoted it to Jesus in Matthew 4. He misquoted it conveniently as he always does because that's his strategy to confuse the world and God's people to buy into the lie. But biblical knowledge will never save you from the wrath or judgment of God. Only faith in Christ. You know, I've been asked on numerous occasions, well, if it's faith in Christ that saves us from the wrath or judgment of God for our sins, then what, happens to, what happened to all those people in the Old Testament who never saw Jesus? Simple. They looked forward to the day when he would come. And when Mary and Joseph understood that it was through the virgin birth of Mary that God would send his Redeemer into the world, by faith they trusted him and believed that Jesus was the Messiah who had been promised to them by God. Ananias, the same thing in the temple. Simeon, Simeon and Anna, I'm sorry, in the temple were in the same boat. When he lived to see the day of his Redeemer, the promise of God. If you're familiar with the, the, uh, John chapter 11, when Lazarus died, uh, Jesus asked Martha, said, hey, don't, do you believe that your brother will be raised again on the last day? And she said, I know that he'll be raised together on the last day. He said, but wait a minute. Do you believe that even though he's died, he shall live? Have you believed this? And she said, I have believed that you are the Christ the Son of the living God, even He who has come into the world. What she was saying was powerfully significant to all of us, and that is this. She's saying, I believe that you are the one that God had promised through the Old Testament. You're the one. You're the fulfillment of the one that God had promised, the Savior of the world. You are the Christ. It was a title for Savior. You are the Savior of the world. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everyone in the Old Testament time Look forward to the day that God would send his Savior or Redeemer into the world to make a sacrifice that was applicable, appropriate, and sufficient for the sins of the world, whom God would be more than content and happy and satisfied with what he did. They all look forward to that day. They, it was reckoned unto them as righteousness because they had faith in the word of God and trusted that that day would come. How do we know that's true? Because if you read Hebrews chapter 11, we read of all the great saints of the Old Testament who look forward to the day of Christ even though they never lived to see it. They believed the word of God. He, Moses, as a great example, considered the reproach of Christ to be more important than the riches of Egypt. Think about this for a second. To consider the reproach of Christ who had never come into the world and would not for thousands of years later, but he considered that to be more important than all the riches that were before him in that day in all of Egypt. 
said, you know what? I don't care. Abraham, the same thing. He stepped out by faith and said, I'm going to go to a place that I haven't seen that God's not even revealing to me because I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. Even though this looks comfortable and this looks wonderful, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to go where he wants me to go. Everyone in the Old Testament was saved the same way that everyone in the New Testament and today is saved, and that is by faith in Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. They look forward, we look backwards. But nonetheless, it all revolves around Jesus and him crucified. I preach Christ and him crucified. And that's the bottom line of the gospel message. The point is, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is believing the word of God and then taking God at his word and acting upon it. It's a tutor that leads us to action. What is the action that God wants every human being to take as the word of God is used in their hearts to reflect that which God already knows. Number one, every human being must recognize what God says about them as true. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. I am separated from God because of that sin that lives within me. God wants us to recognize that. Number two, he wants us to repent of that. He wants us to turn from sin and turn to God and throw ourselves upon his mercy and his grace for the forgiveness of that sin. He wants us to repent, which means have a changing of mind, change of mind about who Jesus is. If he's anything less than the Savior of the world in your mind, you better change your mind because whatever you believe about him is not true. He is the Savior of the world, none other, no other name given to man under heaven by which man can be saved. I have believed that you are the Christ even he who comes into the world. Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, for my Father revealed that to you, who is in heaven. That's who he is. Anything less, you better change your mind, because you know what? The truth is the truth, regardless of what you believe. He is who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world. Even before Abraham existed, I am. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes in the Father, but through me. It's very clear all through Scripture. It's to lead us to that point where we have a change of mind about who Jesus is. We also have a change of mind about our own efforts that somehow we can work our way to heaven. You can't, I can't, no one can. Jesus paid the price. Jesus did it all. It is finished on the cross. Everything that God demanded for sin was paid by the shedding of the blood of our Lord and Savior upon the cross. What does God demand of man? That we repent and we turn to God. And then what? That we respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. That he died for my sin. That he died for your sin and that he rose again three days later. That he's exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father today, and one day he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. He says all judgment has been turned over to him because of what he accomplished on the cross. See, we respond with faith, and we receive him as our Savior. To them, he has given the right to be called children of God, to those who believe on his name. He is offering mankind a gift. It's God's grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God. He hands it out to every human being and says, receive this gift. And we either do or we don't. No one's neutral. You either do or you don't. See, the word of God gives us instruction for salvation. The word of God gives us instruction to be steadfast. The word of God gives us instruction, lastly, for service. Where he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. There's two, uh, two predicate adjectives that describe the word of God in this passage. Number one is it's inspired, and number two, it's profitable. The first thing is the word inspiration literally means God-breathed. The word of God is God-breathed. 
It comes from God into the, those God has chosen to write the word of God. God has divinely superintended the accurate recording of his divinely uh, breathed truth by those he chose to write it. And they recorded it accurately without any mistake. It is a supernatural act of God. Even a child could understand as he's led by the Holy Spirit the truth of the Word of God. It's God-breathed. It is the Word of God. You know, and when we talk about inspiration, we're not talking about, you know, the kind of things like, wow, what an inspired performance and all that kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with that. It literally means that God took, in fact, Second Peter tells us that holy men of God, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, proclaimed the word of God, plain and simple, all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. It's interesting, you know, we run into people all the time, it's kind of fascinating. I was confronted by a woman who said, well, I only believe the words of Jesus in the Bible, just the red letters. So what? I just go, where do people come up with this stuff? Well, typically they come up with it because they read something else somewhere else that they didn't like. And they go, well, you know what? If I can just confine it to this, but here's the problem. Jesus quoted the Old Testament all the time, and not only did he quote the Old Testament as being authoritative in the Word of God, but he also quoted the fact that there would be further revelation that would come in the New Testament, which we have as the writings. The Gospels weren't written when Jesus was, was alive. They were written immediately following his death. And the New Testament letters of Paul and the other authors weren't written, written until after that. And Jesus foretold the fact that that would be the case because he said that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to remembrance the things that I've said. He also added that when he returned to heaven, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, when did he come, Pentecost, and when Jesus had already ascended into heaven, he says, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you, John chapter 16. The point is this, that all of scripture is validated by our Lord himself. Even Paul knew he was writing the word of God when he wrote 1 Corinthians. You can read it in 2 Corinthians 2.17. Peter quotes Paul's writings as scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. And also John in the book of Revelation had a great awareness that what he was writing was from the word, was a word of God from God himself. In, John, in Revelation 1, in chapters 2, verses 7, 11, 17, 29, chapter 3, verses 6, 13, and 22, the point is this. All Scripture is inspired by God, literally God-breathed. Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, letters, all of it, period, end of debate. But it's also profitable, and we'll close on this. It's profitable four ways. Number one, the Word of God is profitable for what? Teaching. Teaching means very simply this, so that we know what's right. All of sound doctrine, the Word of God is profitable. This you know, doesn't refer to the process or the method of teaching, but to the content. Everything in the Bible is profitable for teaching. Some translations render it doctrine, and we've already saw the deceitful winds of doctrine, other teachings that come along that aren't true. Well, this is truth. Everything in the Word of God is profitable for teaching. All of it, the full counsel, the whole purpose of God is found in the Bible. All we need to do uh, to know it is to actually study it. You know, if you stop and think about it, we need to study the Word of God. The reason we don't know it, simply put, is because we don't put much effort into studying it. 
The point is simple. The truth of God's word, you know, it's like a spirit, it's, 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 it's spiritual wealth that's deposited in your own personal bank account to be drawn against whenever you need it. Think about when Jesus was confronted by Satan in the wilderness. When he was lied to by Satan, Jesus carefully chose passages of scripture that would refute the lie that Satan brought him. You and I, when we're confronted by temptation, we go to that bank where we put all of this information and we draw against it at the time of temptation. I always like to say when I do men's groups, you know, you take it and you spit in the eye of the devil the word of God because there's nothing the devil hates more than the word of God, period. He will flee from you. Man, when you carefully choose scripture that applies to that temptation in your life, then you know what? Then that temptation, you know, the word of God says no temptation overtakes you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know the way of escape that God has provided for us? The word of God. Know it. Know it and live it. They also are told that it's profitable for reproof. Which, you know what, in our day of, you know, political correctness, you know, is anybody ever wrong anymore? I, you know, is anybody wrong? No, well, no, that's just the way you see it. Get out of here. You know, I, I didn't lie, I didn't cheat, I didn't steal. I, that's just the way you see it. Well, gee, I don't know, it's the way the judge saw it, the jury saw it, and everybody that three in prison saw it. So I'm thinking that the evidence is starting to become a little more overwhelming on the side of, I think you stole you know what I mean? But it's like, oh, no. But, see, the word of God is profitable for what? For telling us when we're wrong. We need to share with one another in a spirit of gentleness and love and speak the truth in love, as he's already told Timothy, and gently with those who are living in sin, the reality of their condition. I'm sorry you're wrong. And how I know you're wrong is because these passages in Scripture clearly tell you that you're wrong. The whole point of confronting a brother living in sin is not so that you and I can somehow or another get them to repent and turn from it because God knows. There have been many people he's brought into my life that I've confronted with the truth of God's word and you know what? They didn't immediately repent. They didn't say thank you. Wow, what a friend you are in Jesus. They didn't say any of that. You know, they were angry. They were bitter. They got in my face at times. They screamed. They yelled at me. They dropped some bombs on me and then they turned around and walked out. The whole purpose of trying to save a brother from sin by confronting him with the word of God is to allow the spirit of God through the truth of the word of God to convict them of their actions. If nothing else happens as we confront one another, this one thing should occur and that should be conviction of sin. The word of God is profitable for teaching and reproof for conviction when we're wrong before God. You know, what you think is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. What you want to do is wrong. You know, it's wrong because it's measured against the objective standard of the Word of God and God says what you're doing is wrong. Be gentle, be loving, but be steadfast to hang on to the truth of the Word of God because only God's Word can set us free from the bindings of sin. It's profitable for correction. Now that you know you're wrong, here's what you need to do to get right. You know, we need to be gentle as we are telling people they're wrong. We need to also be gracious as we're being told by God, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and God's people if we're wrong as well. It goes both ways. Now we also need to understand the positive thing is this. I can't get it right till I know that I'm wrong. I'm not going to ask God to forgive me if I think I'm okay. I'm not going to trust in Jesus as my Savior if I think I can work my way to heaven. 
I'm not going to ask my wife to forgive me unless I know that I've offended her. And so the same is true here. You know what? Until we know we're wrong, we're not open to get right. But the Word of God not only shows us where we're wrong, but tells us positively how to get right. You're a liar? Tell the truth. You steal? Work. You're involved in sexual immorality? Stop it. You're unfaithful to your spouse? Be faithful to your spouse. See, it's real simple. You know, you're, you're angry and you're sinning? Be angry and sin not. Self-control. See, it, it, God not only shows us where we're wrong, but he also helps us to get right. And the last thing is so that we're trained. Training has to do with, man, getting ready for the day when you'll need your training. Spring training, perfect example. Many guys that are in spring training look at it as a necessary evil. Perfect example. Gee, how'd that come to me? Because it's only like 10 weeks away. So, but, uh, you know, good news, bad news. You won the World Series, bad news. Hey, you got to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> but, uh, but the reality of it, what's all purpose of training? So that you will apply the things that you've learned in spring training. I watch guys all through the season, and I recognize how many times in spring training that's what they do over and over and over again. Anybody ever goes to a game early? I know it's Southern California. Most of you get there in the third inning and leave in the eighth. But, you know, in the future, if you ever get there early, you'll notice that guys are out there. They're actually at batting practice and infield, and they, they do all these things every game. Why? So that in the game, they will put to practice the things that they had just learned. God says the same thing. The word of God for you and I is profitable in that it will train us for the moment that it is now time to be in the game for God that we have something to use for his glory and for his honor. Why go to Bible study? Well, the whole purpose of all of it is so that you will be equipped to do what God has called you to do. We don't go to Bible study so we can know more about God and we can have a puffed up head about how much we know. We go and we seek the truth from the Word of God so that we can begin to apply in our everyday life the things that we are learning, to put them in practice. No one would go to spring training if they weren't going to play in the games when it came game time. No one would go to Bible study but Christians and then not to apply the truth that we learn. It's an amazing, just, it's just amazing paradox. We go to study the Bible and then not to apply it. It's the only place in life where we'll do that, except maybe college, but that's something totally different. But, but the point is this. All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, so that the purpose of Bible study is not just to understand doctrine or defend the faith, as important as those things are. The ultimate purpose is the equipping of believers who read it for the work of God who has prepared us to do that work before the foundation of the world. Times are not going to get any better. But as Christians, we can get better during difficult times by drawing closer to our Savior and knowing the Word of God. God's plan for reaching people is to use us to share God's word, the full counsel of God, with those who are perishing and don't even know it. For those who are perishing and they don't even know it. To declare his truth with our lips and with our life. To teach it so that it's taught and caught by the way that we live. See, we must flee from that which is wrong and pursue that which is right before God. 
We're to separate and avoid, avoid false teaching and devote ourselves to the truth of God's word and to share this truth with all those who God brings into our lives. Father, thank you for your word. God, I just pray that we remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil in the Lord is not in vain, that we hang on to the anchor of the word of God for what it is, that which you've given us, the living, active word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, able to separate even bone from marrow. We thank you that this word is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that those who have come to faith in Christ will be used by you in a mighty way to make a difference for your kingdom and for your purposes. We thank you for the word of God, the only source of knowledge that leads us to the wisdom that leads to salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Your word tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. And it's by grace through faith that we're saved. It's a gift from God, not of ourselves, so that none of us could ever boast. Lord, we just thank you at this point for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ whom you promised before the foundation of the world as your means and plans to redeem man to yourself. That you sent your only begotten son, you loved us so much, and you tell us that even when we're in rebellion against you, that you loved us and sent him to die on our behalf. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray for those here today who are believing in their church, believing in themselves, believing in their own efforts, believing in those around them, believing in anything and everything but believing in Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, that today they will do that and resolve it once for all, eternity in their hearts. That they would recognize their sinfulness. They're not as good as they thought they were as the Word of God reveals so clearly that all of us fall short of the standard of God, that none are righteous. That they'll turn from sin, that we repent and turn from sin and turn to you and throw themselves upon your mercy and grace. That they'll ask for forgiveness. And the Bible tells us clearly that those who are broken and contrite of heart, oh God, you will never turn away. Lord, we thank you that Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. We thank you that he rose again from the dead and that he lives triumphantly today, offering eternal life to all those who believe. Lord, we just pray for those who have never received them as Lord and Savior, that they will do that and resolve that once for all. Lord, we just thank you for your word, because it's in your word that all those things that we just shared come from. And we thank you that you're not like man who would lie or change his mind, but you have given us the totality of everything you want us to know from the beginning to the end. And there's nothing that needs to be added to it, nothing to be taken away. And cursed is anyone who would do such a thing. Lord, we thank you for the word of God, and we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.